Well, I invite you this morning to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Matthew. This morning we are in Matthew chapter 24, and Lord willing, we will finish this chapter this morning. For the past month and a half or so, we have been in Matthew chapter 24, studying about what Jesus Himself taught about His return to this planet. And the first 31 verses of this chapter, Jesus speaks about the signs of His return. When is He going to return? What's it going to be like when He returns? And beginning in verse 32, through the end of chapter 5, Jesus will give us some of the implications of His coming. The application, if you will. If you do the math real quick, you find out that Jesus spends 66 verses on the application to His coming, where only 31 minus a few, only like 27, upon the signs of His coming. So I ought to teach you a little bit about the priority of things. He spends twice as much time talking about the implications of His coming than He does actually about the signs of His coming. And I ought to tell you this, is that when we think about the return of our Lord, it should change the way we live. Prophecy is not just an academic exercise trying to figure out the political scene of the world to try to figure out when he's coming back. No far from that prophecy always has a practical element to it. And we are in the practical section of Jesus speaking about his return. And you think about it, it makes sense, right? The one who lives on the East Coast and hears in the news all around about the coming hurricane that's sweeping across the Atlantic and going to hit the town in two days. The one who doesn't shutter up their windows and the one who doesn't buy a little bit of extra food but just stays there, windows, doors wide open, has lost his mind. And so also the one who lives in Kansas and hears the tornado sirens but fails to seek shelter during a tornado warning is a fool. And so also when one ignores the coming of Jesus by living... As if Jesus were never coming back, that person is in great danger of eternal perdition. That's what Jesus is teaching us and will continue to teach us. See, when you believe in your heart that Jesus is coming back, your life will be different than if you didn't believe that. The person on the East Coast is going to live differently knowing that the hurricane is coming in two days. The person on the plane in Kansas is going to live differently knowing that the tornado very well could strike their house in a few moments. And this morning, we're going to be challenged by the manner of our lives we ought to live in light of His return. Well, two weeks ago, we began to hear the lessons of Jesus that He would have us to learn in verse 32. And we could easily summarize two weeks ago by these two words. It says, Jesus told us to be ready. Right? When the fig tree becomes tender and begins to put forth its leaves, you know summer is near. And when you see the signs coming in Matthew chapter 24, you know that the Lord's return is near. So be ready. And the testimony of the biblical writers is that He is coming. And His coming is near. And it is at hand. And we ought to be ready. In the days of Noah, that spoke about in verse 37, there were many who weren't ready. They were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, and the flood came and destroyed all of them except for the eight people that were ready. 
The Son of Man will come as a thief in the night. That's what it says in verse 43. His coming is going to be soon and unexpected for many who will leave their windows open and their doors unlocked. But those who know the thief is coming will be ready for him. We'll, we'll lock their windows. We'll lock their doors. We'll be ready. It says in verse 44, The Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think He will. Therefore, be ready. Be ready for His coming. And this morning, we learn our second lesson. It's the title of my sermon this morning. Be faithful. Be faithful. Let's read the text. Verse 45 through 51. Jesus gives us a parable. He says this, Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. Truly I say to you that he will put him in charge of all of his possessions. But if that evil slave says in his heart, My master is not coming for a long time and shall begin to beat his fellow slaves and to eat and drink with drunkards. The master of that slave will come on a day when he does not expect him and at an hour when he does not know and shall cut him in pieces and assign him a place with the hypocrites. Weeping shall be there and gnashing of teeth. The story is really pretty simple to understand. There's a master and there is a servant. Not two servants. There is one servant. For some reason, this master is planning on leaving his household for some time. Maybe business draws him away. Maybe pleasure draws him away. We don't know. But in his absence, he left his servant in charge of the household. The slave is to oversee everything, the affairs of his house, while his master is gone. Verse 45 gives indication that he ought to be able to make sure that the people in the house are fed at the proper time. In verse 49, we get a sense that he's to coordinate the other servants in the house. He is responsible to oversee his master's house. And the the servant can respond in one of two ways. Either he can be a faithful and sensible servant who does exactly as he is told. Feeding the servants in due time. Directing the other servants in a worthy, righteous manner. Managing the affairs of his master's house. When his master comes back, he finds everything well ordered and put in place. Or it can be an evil servant who doubts the return of his master, like verse 48 says. Who neglects the duties that were given to him, as verse 49 says. Who abuses his fellow slaves, who lives a life of drunken pleasure. The slave can respond in one of two ways. And based upon how this slave responds the master will respond to this slave in accordance. If the servant's been faithful and sensible, he'll be rewarded with his faithful behavior. As verse 47 says, he'll be put in charge of many possessions. If the servant is evil and wicked, then he'll be punished. As verse 51 says, he'll be cut in pieces and assigned a place of shame. And the simple lesson for us this morning is that we ought not to be the evil servant, but we ought to be the faithful and sensible servant. Or to put it as succinctly as possible, here it is. Be faithful. So my first point this morning is really an exhortation. It's an exhortation to you to be faithful. See, we all have a master in heaven. His name is Jesus. Many of us in this room have bowed our knees to Him. 
We have pleaded His mercy to us, sinners. And many of us have professed to be servants of the Lord. It fits us exactly. Those of you who haven't bowed, you do have a Master in Heaven. Maybe you don't know it, but you do. But we are servants of King Jesus. That's who we are. And our situation is just like the servant in the parable. I mean, look at all these parallels. There are many. Like the Master in this parable, Jesus has gone away to Heaven. You can read about that in Luke, in Acts chapter 1, when the disciples were talking with Him. And even in Luke chapter 1, verse 9, the Bible tells us that Jesus was lifted up from their presence. In a cloud, a cloud received Him out of their sight. It's called the Ascension. Ascension Sunday. Right? They're there, which was last Sunday, actually. They're talking with Jesus, the disciples are, and Jesus just gets lifted up and taken out, just like the Master in the parable, gone away for a season. Another parallel is like the Master in this parable, Jesus is coming back. So we've been studying about in the verse 32 verses, 31 verses of this last chapter. When Jesus was taken up at the ascension, there were two, two men, probably angels. They said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? If I was one of those disciples, I'd be looking into this guy saying, whoa, where'd he go? And they said, this Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come just the same way you've watched him go into heaven. Just as he was taken up in the clouds, so he will come again in the clouds. We read that in verse 30. The Son of Man will come back in the clouds of the sky with great power and great glory. Another parallel, like the Master in this parable, Jesus has clearly given to us instructions when He is away. Maybe they're not as short and succinct as this Master was. His Master said merely, just take care of the household. He probably was doing that. Our instructions are contained in this book that God has given to us to follow and obey, to read and to know about. And as faithful servants, we want to be about pleasing our Master as revealed in His Word. The Lord has told us in the Bible what to believe. We're to believe that the sacrifice of Christ on the cross justified us. And it's His kindness to us that reconciled us to Him. The Lord has told us how to view ourselves. We ought to view ourselves as His servants. Anything that we have comes as a gift from Him. We merit nothing. All has been given to us. And a servant doesn't merit anything. A servant is merely the one who's faithful to his master. The Lord has told us what to do. Things like seeking first His kingdom and His righteousness. Things like laying up treasures for ourselves in heaven. Things like cultivating an inner holiness that would flow outward. Things like forgiving one another when they sin against us. When we know, I can't give you all the commands certainly in the Bible, but give you a flavor of what the Lord has commanded us, told us to do as His servants while the Master is away. And another parallel, even here in this parable is that like the servant, we're called to be faithful when our master is away. When you read this parable, you get the sense that the faithful servant merely put his head down and did what his master told him to do. The master went away, put him in charge, says, okay, I'm in charge, and just went about doing what he was supposed to do. That's what we're called to do. Put our head down, put ourselves to the task. Exactly, he was like a perfect employee. The Bible instructs servants and employees how to live. 
It's always with a heart of obedience. Listen to Ephesians chapter 6, verses 5 and 6. It says, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your masters according to the flesh, with fear and trembling, with sincerity of heart, as to Christ, not by way of eye service as men-pleasers, but as slaves of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart. In other words, men, when you're out in the workforce, ladies, if you're working... Ladies, if you're home, you ought to be about pleasing Christ, but doing so from obeying in your heart to the Lord. And this is hard sometimes. Many people don't do this. I remember a a little joke one time. Two men were in a conversation and one man said, Boy, I'm so nearsighted, I nearly worked myself to death. What does that mean? I'm so nearsighted, I almost worked myself to death. The other one, confused, said... What's being nearsighted got to do with working yourself to death? And he said, I couldn't tell whether the boss was watching or not, and so I had to work all the time. That's not how we ought to work. We ought to work as if the Lord is watching us all the time. In fact, Proverbs chapter 15, verse 3, says, The eyes of the Lord are on every place, watching the evil and the good. And we ought to be about doing our business faithfully, knowing that He's watching us, knowing that we are serving Christ. And that is the faithful servant, the one who watches all the time, who works all the time, regardless who's looking at him. He doesn't just look and see if his master is watching him. He doesn't only work when it will be noticed by his boss. He simply does what's been commanded of him. And so here's the big question. Here's my exhortation. Are you a faithful servant to your master? I'm not talking about your employment situation. I'm talking about your service rendered to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Is your life of such integrity that Jesus could return at any moment and find you doing His will? That's what it means to be faithful. To have Jesus be able to return at any moment, just like the slave in this parable, He finds Him, He's just doing what I told Him to do. Sadly, that's not the reality of many. I read this week a poem entitled, If Christ, If Jesus Came. Here it is. If Jesus came, would you have to change your clothes before you let Him in? Or hide some magazines and put some Bibles where they'd been? Would you hide your worldly music and put some hymn books out? Could you let Jesus walk right in or would you rush about? Would the truth be known, many of us might be rushing about if Jesus came. But the faithful one has nothing to hide. He says, Lord, come right on in. I've been waiting for you. In fact, I've been cultivating my life and my house to be just the place where you'd like to dwell. Come on in. That's the type of servant that we ought to be. See, the faithful child has no fear when mom or dad just comes into his room. Because he knows that he's doing his homework just like mom and dad told me to do. And the faithful employee isn't worried about where the boss will come and examine his work because he knows it will be found true. And the faithful servant isn't concerned with the timing of his master's return because he knows he's doing his master's business. And the faithful Christian has no fear regarding the return of the Lord because when the Lord comes again, it will be a welcoming. It will be a rejoicing, not a hiding. The Bible says there are those who flee at the rustling leaf. So paranoid are they. They're they're involved in their evil and their wickedness. Then when they hear something, they they hear it and they flee because they think it's someone coming to be able to see them. 
There are those who shudder when the door opens upon them. Oh, I'm not doing what I'm supposed to do. And there are those who will fear when the Lord returns because they have not been about doing His will. They've been unfaithful. And I'm here to declare to you all this morning that Jesus, the Lord, is coming back. And your welfare on that day when He returns will be determined by your faithfulness here on earth today. That's the story of the parable. If Jesus finds you doing His will when He returns, you'll be blessed in great measure. And if Jesus finds you ignoring His will when He returns, you'll face incredible punishment. And I guarantee you that when He returns, you want to be the one who's about doing the Lord's business when He returns. You don't want to be the unfaithful servant. In our flock Bible studies... We've recently surveyed the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. And it's been good for our souls, for those of us who've been involved with that, because in that chapter, Jesus is actually turning people away from His kingdom because they didn't do the will of His Father who's in heaven. They said, Jesus, Jesus, let us in. Look at all these good things we did. And He's going to turn them away because they didn't do the will of His Father. They were found unready. They were found unfaithful. And this morning, as we pierce your heart, I trust that this morning will be profitable for you as well. Are you faithful? Are you unfaithful? Are you pleasing Him? Are you doing His will? Are you believing the things He's told us about Him? I don't know why anyone wouldn't believe the things we've sung about today. Complete forgiveness and restoration and holiness with God by just believing and trusting in Christ. And belief in that will spurn you on then to love and good deeds. That's what the Bible teaches Well, that's an exhortation. I want to give you some examples. I want to give you an example of a faithful servant. I want to give you an example of an unfaithful servant this morning. So turn in your Bibles to Genesis 39. Genesis 39 is the story of Joseph. This chapter picks up just after his brothers sold him into slavery by a a traveling band of Ishmaelites who brought him down to Egypt. And here's Joseph, verse 1. I want you to notice his faithfulness. It's unbelievable. Now Joseph had been taken down to Egypt and Potiphar, an Egyptian officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the bodyguard, bought him from the Ishmaelites who had taken him down there. And the Lord was with Joseph, so he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his master, the Egyptian. Now his master saw that the Lord was with him and how the Lord caused all that he did to prosper in his hand. Here was Joseph, having every reason to complain with his circumstances. He was the favored son. Life was at relative ease. And now he finds himself a servant, sold. Maybe like us, we're Americans. What do you mean being a servant? That can't be. He could have complained. But he labored and he labored hard and the Lord blessed him and it was obvious to all that the Lord was with him. In fact, verse 4 picks it up. So Joseph found favor in his sight. That's the sight of Potiphar. And became his personal servant. And he made him overseer over his house and all that he owned and put him in charge. Put it it in his charge. 
And it came about that from the time he made him overseer in his house and over all that he owned, the Lord blessed the Egyptian's house on account of Joseph. And thus the Lord's blessing was upon all that he owned in the house of the field, in the field. And so he left everything he owned in Joseph's charge. And with him there he did not concern himself with anything except for the food in which he ate. Joseph was faithful in slavery. He was a slave at this point. And notice how the faithfulness came about because the Lord was with him. In verse 2, it says the Lord was with Joseph. In verse 3, it says the Lord was with him. In verse 5, it was the Lord blessing Potiphar's house because of Joseph. And really, that's how it works for the Lord. As we are faithful to a task given to us, He's faithful to prosperous servants. And really, in a greater degree, it works the other way around. The Lord is with us, and so we labor, and so He prospers us. And really, that's exactly the situation of a parable this morning. Here, this faithful servant was the one who was put in charge of everything of his master's house. That is Joseph. That is the faithful servant. And the story continues, the end of verse 6. Now, Joseph was handsome in form and appearance. And it came about after these events that his master's wife looked with desire at Joseph. And she said, lie with me. But he refused and said to his master's wife, behold... With me here, my master does not concern himself with anything in the house, and he has put all that he owns in my charge. There is no one greater in this house than I, and he has withheld nothing from me except you, because you are his wife. How then could I do this great evil and sin against God? And it came about as she spoke to Joseph day after day, that he did not listen to her to lie beside her or to be with her. Now it happened one day, that he went into the house to do his work and none of the men of the household were there inside and she caught him by the garment saying, Lie with me. And he left his garment in her hand and fled away outside. In Potiphar's house, we meet with a desperate housewife who tried to drag him down. His initial temptation came here in verse 7. She just said, Lie with me. But verse 8, he refused. In verse 10, we learn the temptation came day after day after day after day after day after day. Lie with me, lie with me, lie with me, lie with me. He refused to lie with her. The climax came in verse 12. Nobody's around. Potiphar's wife grabs his garment and says, lie with me. And he still refused, left the garment in hand. Now you think about the garments that they wore, right? They they wore like a big bed sheet over it, kind of wrapped it around them. You know how hard that would have been? She'd have grabbed him, maybe spun around like this a few times and then took off, and he ran away in his underwear. That's what he did. We could look at these verses and find out how Joseph dealt with temptation and, and teach us many lessons about how serious a thing he considered it. How he saw a sin in that way would be a sin against the Lord. And how he took drastic measures against that sin. But the point is this, that David was a, that Joseph was a faithful man. He was faithful in temptation. The Lord bless him? Yes and no. Let's look on. Verse 13. When she saw that he had left his garment in her hand and had fled outside, she called to the men of her household and said to them, See, he's brought in a Hebrew to make sport of us. He came in to me to lie with me and I screamed. And it came about when he heard that I raised my voice and screamed that he left his garment beside me and fled and went outside. 
So she left his garment beside her until her master came home. Then she spoke to him with these words, The Hebrew slave whom you brought to us came into me to make sport of me. And it happened as I raised my voice and screamed that he left his garment beside me and fled outside. That came about when his master heard the words of his wife, which she spoke to him, saying, This is what your slave did to me, that his anger burned. And so Joseph's master took him and put him in the jail, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. And he was there in the jail. Joseph, in his faithfulness, was wrongfully accused. Sent to jail. Now, in Joseph's days, this is a pretty lenient penalty. The Egyptians thought nothing of hanging unfaithful servants, as happened to the chief baker the next chapter. But his difficulties, in such difficulties, the Lord doesn't forsake those who love Him. The Lord doesn't forsake those who are faithful. And we read this in verse 21. The Lord was with Joseph and extended kindness to him and gave him favor in the sight of the chief jailer. The chief jailer committed to Joseph's charge all the prisoners who were in the jail so that whatever was done there, he was responsible for it. The chief jailer did not supervise anything under Joseph's charge because the Lord was with him. And whatever he did, the Lord made him to prosper. And again, this is almost the same language used in Matthew's, in the parable in Matthew chapter 24. All the prisoners being committed to Joseph's charge. And I want you to see Joseph's faithfulness. Joseph's faithfulness continues even being a prisoner. Joseph was faithful in prison. And you read on and you'll see how faithful he was. Today he would have received a shorter sentence for good behavior. And again, see that it, it wasn't Joseph who was mustering it up. It was the Lord, verse 21, who was with Joseph. It was the Lord, verse 22, who was with Joseph. It was the Lord who made him to prosper, verse 22. But he was faithful in the process. And I believe that Joseph so lived as we ought to live as we await the return of our Savior. As Joseph labored, I don't think that he was laboring with an eye towards Potiphar. Okay, when's Potiphar looking? Okay, I can labor now. I think he was just about doing his labor and doing it. And Potiphar is kind of looking over all the slaves and said, Boy, this one particularly, he stands out among them. Why? Because he's faithful. I'm not sure he labored in front of the chief jailer so as to be, you know, when's, oh, the chief jailer's looking, looking, he's going to do it. I think when the chief jailer was gone and when he's here, when absent, when present, he was always about doing the business he was supposed to. In fact, that's what Paul commended the Philippians with, Philippians chapter 2. So then, my brothers, you've always obeyed, not only in my presence, but also in my absence. That's what you should do. And that's what these people did. That's what Joseph did. He was faithful, and the Lord blessed him. Joseph's an example of a faithful servant who was completely ready for the return of the Lord, just doing about his business. Let's look at an unfaithful servant. Certainly, there are many in the Bible. One that comes to my mind, a good story, is that of Gehazi. Gehazi was the servant of Elisha. Good. 2 Kings chapter 5 tells a story. Turn with me in your Bibles there. We're going to just read through the story like we did with Joseph and see an unfaithful servant. We're going to see an unfaithful servant reap the consequences of his unfaithfulness. 2 Kings 5 is all about the story of Naaman the king of Aram, who was healed of his leprosy by Elisha. It's very curious. After he was healed of his leprosy, he, he offered to give Elisha some type of payment for his miracle. 
But Elisha refused. And Elisha said in verse 16, As the Lord lives by whom I stand, I will take nothing. And he urged him to take it and he refused. Name it in 17 and 18. Continue to bestow, hey, more and more and more I will give you. Nahaman said, if not, please let your servant at least be given two mules load of earth. For your servant will be no more offer burnt offering, nor will he sacrifice to other gods but to the Lord. In this manner, may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master goes into the house of Rimmon to worship there, and he leans on my hand, and I bow myself to the house of Rimmon, when I bow myself in the house of Rimmon, the Lord pardon your servant in this manner. And he said to him, Go in peace. So he departed for him at some distance. I mean, the, the discussion that was had here before between uh, Elisha and Naaman was just like, he's trying to give, he's trying to give, he's trying to give. And Elisha's like, no, thank you, no, thank you, no, thank you. I can do okay. And he left. And you know what this is about, right? An act of kindness. You argue over your, your bill at the restaurant. You do something kind for somebody, you mow their lawn, and they want to give you something. And Elisha said, no, 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 that's, that's going to ruin it. It's from love. That's what the perspective was. And then we pick up the story here in verse 20. But Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God thought, okay, here's the evil servant thinking. He says, behold, my master has spared this Naaman, the Aramean, by not receiving from his hands what he brought. As the Lord lives, I will run after him and take something from him. At this point, Gehazi's not being the faithful servant. He's being ruled by his own passions and his own desires. Rather than emulating the pattern, the spirit, and the heart of Elisha, his master, he's being driven by his own greed to get what he wants. He said, I will take something from him. Elisha's not going to take it. It's there for the taking. I'll take it. We see in verse 21 what Gehazi does. So Gehazi pursued Naaman, turned back. And the sense is here that Elisha was going on and Gehazi turned back apart from his master. And he said, when Naaman saw one running after him, he came down from the chariot to meet him and said, Is all well? And he said, All is well. My master has sent me, saying, Behold, just now two young men of the sons of the prophets have come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two changes of clothes. You know what he did? He lied. He just flat out lied. Elisha didn't send him. I doubt whether even these two men existed. He was seeking his own. And as we read on, we see that Gehazi takes this money, takes his clothes, and puts it in his house. Right? Verse 23. And Naaman said, please be, be pleased. And Naaman at this time is, is pleased. Hey, I give something. I do get, you know, I do pay to him and he gives back to me. He said, be pleased to take two talents. And he urged him and bound two talents of silver and two bags with two changes of clothes and gave them to two of his servants and they carried them before him. We came to the hill. He took them from their hand and deposited them in the house. And he sent the men away and then he departed. Then we find him lying again, this time to Elisha. This is the evil and unfaithful slave. He says, but he went in, stood before his master, and Elisha said to him, where have you been, Gehazi? And he said, your servant went nowhere. That's a lie. And then Elisha, discerning, perhaps supernaturally, what took place? He said, did not my heart go with you 
when the man turned from his chariot to meet you? Is it a time to receive money and to receive clothes and olive groves and vineyards and sheep and oxen and male and female servant? Therefore the punishment comes. The leprosy of Naaman shall cleave to you and to your descendants forever. So he went out from his presence as a, as a leper, as white as snow. He was an unfaithful servant receiving his punishment. Whereas the Lord was with Joseph and blessed Joseph immensely, we see here a curse coming upon Gehazi. And from that day forward, Gehazi was leprous and all of his descendants along with him. Gehazi was an unfaithful servant who was in it for himself. Oh, he was fine in the presence of his master. But when he had left his master and went away from him, we find him filled with greed. We find him filled with lying, allowing his true colors to show. So I ask you, are you Joseph or are you Gehazi? Is the Lord with you or has the Lord cursed you? Do you behave in such a way that you're not ashamed for the whole world to see as Joseph was in his labor? People saw and saw him prospering. Or are your actions done in secret, seeking to hide it even from your master like Gehazi did? And I'm telling you here, church family, your type of service will reap its reward. For those who are faithful will receive a reward at the coming of Christ and those who are unfaithful will be punished severely at His coming. In fact, I really want to focus your attention back on Matthew chapter 24. Turn back there. Because this aspect of reward is strong in Jesus' parable. He really brings it out. He's going to focus our attention on the result. I've given you an exhortation to be faithful. I've given you two examples of Joseph and Gehazi. And now, my third point, I want to show you the end result. The end result for the faithful, the end result is a reward. A reward sits at the end if you're faithful. Look what it says in verse 47. Truly I say to you that the master who comes back to his faithful servant will put him in charge of all of his possessions. I look to see in the Bible just a few of the things that we will receive if we remain faithful to the end. If you remain faithful to Christ until the end, this is what you will receive. You will be saved, Matthew 24, verse 13 says. As the outcome of your faith, you will receive the salvation of your souls, 1 Peter 1.9. You will be revealed as a son of God, Romans 8.19. You will be given an imperishable body. 1 Corinthians 15.53 You will receive the crown of righteousness. 2 Timothy 4.8 You will get to eat from the tree of life. Revelation chapter 2, verse 7 You'll receive the crown of life. Revelation chapter 2, verse 10 You'll be clothed in white garments, signified purity before the Lord, Revelation 3, 5. And this one blew me away. You will sit with Jesus on His throne. If you don't believe me, Revelation chapter 3, verse 21 says that. It's an amazing reward. Romans 8, 17 says that we will be fellow heirs with Christ to inherit everything that Christ inherits. We will dwell in the New Jerusalem with God forever. 
Revelation 21, verse 3. We will drink from the water of life. Revelation 21, verse 6. We will never mourn, never cry, never suffer, or never die again. Revelation 21, 4. We will have the fullness of joy. Psalm 16, verse 11. We will enjoy pleasures forevermore. Psalm 16, verse 11. We will enjoy a glory that far surpasses any sufferings of this present time. Romans 8, 18. We will be glorified. Revelation 8, 28, 29. Now, does that spurn you on? If you remain faithful, all those things are yours. All you need to do is believe the reward is in your grasp. Toil and labor to be faithful. To serve your absent master and you will have that. Well, to illustrate this, I want to tell you the story about some of our friends we have in California. We have an opportunity to visit them each summer, spend several days with them. They are dear and precious people. And their son, Jason, recently won the Sacramento area spelling bee. Sacramento area, a couple million people all come together, have a spelling bee. He won it. He's like, what grade? Sixth grade? Is that what Jason is? Sixth grade? And they sent us out a nice DVD that shows the whole thing. It shows his first spelling bee, and it was among homeschoolers, about 12 homeschoolers, and he won this uh, spelling bee contest. And so that allowed him then to progress to the citywide Sacramento area spelling bee where the 250 local spelling bees had to be dwindled down to about 60 participants. So he took a written examination and was one of the final 60. And, and the video showed him standing up word after word after word after word, spelling these words correctly. Test yourselves now. Are you a good speller? He spelled scalpel. That was pretty easy, right? S-C-A-P-E-L. That was... He spelled centurion. Maybe a biblical word. Maybe that one's easy. And then he spelled kenning. Kenning. Cyanosis. Ostman. Clematis. Pentateuchal. Skirit. Picayune. Decreolization. And we're watching this. I said, whoa. He kind of stand up there and kind of hold the microphone and spell these words out. And that he wouldn't hear a, a ding, means you're wrong. And he kind of wait. I said, that is correct. And he'd sit down, remember in the video, he kind of ran back to his seat. And eventually, right, these 60 people were, came down to only two. And at this point, they need to battle back and forth and to spell two words correctly in order to win. And he spelled the word niveau correctly. As a result of that, he gets the reward of an all-expense-paid trip to Washington, D.C. to compete in the National Spelling Bee Championship the first couple of days in June. I think it's June 1st and 2nd. Now, my children watched this video, and they came away thrilled with the prospect of the reward that might face them. And that night, they told us several times, right, guys? Mom, Dad, I really want to be involved in the spelling bee. I want to do what Jason did. Right? They see the reward. And yet mom and dad doubt whether they really want to put in the hour of spelling practice every day that it's taken him to get there. Right? Listen, to get the reward, you need to be willing to make the sacrifice. 
Isn't that what Steve Belanger preached last week? The soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing, but the soul of the diligent is made fat. And that's true of the Christian life as well. To get the reward, you need to be willing to make the sacrifice. And for us, being faithful to Jesus, being faithful to make that sacrifice means this. It means believing in Jesus, the only begotten Son of God. It means trusting in the righteousness of Jesus to cause us to be blameless before the Father. It means turning from sin to follow Christ. Many don't want to do that. It means loving the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It means loving your neighbor as yourself. Many don't want to do that. Many want to love themselves. It means confessing your sins to the Lord and to each other. Many don't want to do that. It means denying yourself and taking up your cross and following Him. Many don't want to be willing to die for the Lord. It means giving up all your possessions to be used by the Lord. People don't want to do that. They, they got their money. They want it to keep in. God says, you want to be my disciples? No one can be my disciple who does not give up everything that he has. It means holding everything you have with an open arm. As followers of Christ, Jesus demands much from us. In fact, even at one point, he used the imagery of a yoke to symbolize what it means to follow him. He says, take my yoke upon you. A yoke is a symbol of submission and service. He said, place upon yourself the harness of a beast of burden who pulls a plower wagon and begin to pull. And the yoke of Jesus has many requirements and calls us to hard work. But also, the yoke of Jesus is an easy yoke. And it's a light yoke. See, we're not saved by pulling Jesus' plow. We aren't saved by pulling Jesus on a wagon. We're saved by free and abundant grace. But we place His yoke upon ourselves, willingly upon our shoulders, because we want to and we delight to submit to our loving Lord. And surprisingly, we find it easy. In fact, a few months ago, Steve Belanger delivered a sermon from 1 John 5, verse 3. This is the love of God that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not... Burdensome, not burdensome. See, that's the light yoke. We're not burdened by the commandments of the Lord. It's what we want to pursue anyway. And the Lord is coming back. Of this you can be sure. He will reward His faithful and sensible servant. Is that you? The reward will be great. The biblical principle is this. Faithful in little, faithful in much. Unfaithful in little, unfaithful in much. This life is little, and the next life, there will be much. If you're faithful with the little things you have here, I'm telling you, the the list of things that you will get if you overcome, continue, persevere until the end, are abundant and extraordinary. Well, that's the end result for the faithful. It's reward. The end result for the wicked is punishment. comes in verses 48 to 51. These are terrifying words. We find the evil slave neglecting his duties. In verse 48, we see him denying his master's return. He says in his heart, My master is not coming for a long time. Such thoughts come from an evil heart. And I tell you that we are so easily prone to such thoughts. We're so easily prone to put off the return of the Lord. Say, Oh, he's not coming for a long time. In fact, William Barclay shared this parable, this fable... At this point in his commentary in Matthew 24, it's instructive for us. He said that there are three apprentice devils who are coming to this earth to finish their apprenticeship. 
And he said, they were talking to Satan, the chief of the devils, about their plans to tempt and ruin men. And the first one said this, I will tell them there's no God. And Satan said, that won't delude many, for they know that there's a God. So the second apprentice said, I will tell them that there's no hell. Satan said, you'll deceive no one that way. Men know even now that there is a hell for sin. And the third said, I will tell men that there's no hurry. Satan says, ah, go. And you will ruin them by the thousand. See, to live without the reality of the return of the Lord in your mind is a very dangerous thing to do. When you expect Him to delay His coming and to resume upon tomorrow, you'll find yourself easily distracted from the work at hand. And I believe that faithful and sensible slave was helped in his labor. He knew his master was coming back. Oh, he didn't know when. But he knew he'd come back and see his work and his work would be rewarded. But when you deny your master's return, oh, he's going to delay. You lose your accountability. You lose your sense of urgency. And you only seek to please yourself exactly like this evil slave did. Look at verse 49. He began to beat his fellow slaves and eat and drink with, with drunkards. Rather than using his authority to enforce the will of his father, of his master, he used it for his own means. Rather than subjecting himself to the will of the master, he sought to put himself up as kings and have these servants serve him. He abused his freedom, was only living for himself, beating his fellow slaves, forcing them to labor beyond what was reasonable, eating and drinking with drunkards, becoming one himself. The slave was expecting a long delay. Many days of easy living and at some point the reality of his master's return would probably become a reality. I mean, certainly he knew that his master was going to return, but it was going to be a long way off. But when he anticipated that a master was going to come, he said, I better get to work. I know what this is about. My wife's parents live in California. As a family, we try to take off and get out there every summer and to be with them and to enjoy the swimming pool and enjoy the California air. Now, on several occasions, I sent my family out a week early so that our kids can spend time with Grandma and Grandpa and just maximize that time. And during those occasions, I've lived as a bachelor. Yvonne is off. She's not coming back for a while. No need to do dishes. I don't need to pick up those clothes today. The newspapers can say spread out on the table. I don't need to make the bed. I don't need to sort the mail. Life is ease. But when I know expected her home, I got some work to do, so she'll be happy upon her return, right? Now suppose I sent her out ahead one time and she made a surprise visit back one time. I'd have a lot, a lot of really fast cleaning to do to be ready for her. And I speak this to my shame. I don't speak this because this is what you should do. And I want to change. And in a few weeks, I'm going to have a, a chance to change. Avon is going with Carissa and her mother to Tahiti to visit a great aunt of Avon's. Avon's family's from Tahiti. I'm not sure you know that. She doesn't look Tahitian. But some of her family's from Tahiti. And they're going to be gone. And for a few days, even the other kids are going to be shipped off with some of the cousins. I'm going to be a bachelor for a few days. And in recent discussions I've had with Yvonne, there's been discussions in our family about the cleanliness of the house when she's gone. And I think to myself, well, 
I know when she's coming back home. I know exactly the day she's coming back home. The house doesn't need to be cleaned up until then. But the principle of faithfulness will give me every reason to be ready should Yvonne come home early. And that's exactly what took place with this servant. He thought everything would delay. And verse 50 tells us that the master of the slave will come on a day when he does not expect him. At an hour he does not know. Without warning, the slave had to give account for his work. Now, that's how the return of the Lord is. That's what the parable of Noah is about. Many eating and drinking until suddenly the flood came. They weren't faithful. It was a dreadful day when the master returned. It says in Proverbs chapter 10, verse 26, Like vinegar to the teeth and smoke to the eyes, so is the lazy one to those who send him. In other words, imagine yourself taking smoke and going, blowing it in someone's eyes. Right? Irritates someone. Oh, yeah. That's what it's like when someone goes off, you send them to do a task to do, and they don't do it. By the way, parents, a great verse to use for your children. I told you to go off and clean your room. You come back, and the phrase in our household has been, kids, you're blowing smoke in our eyes because you're not faithful to do what you're supposed to do. And if you get smoke in your eyes, and I'm not sure quite how vinegar in the teeth works, but somehow something that hurts your teeth in there, you're irritated and you're angry. And so the master here with irritated eyes and irritated teeth and an irritated heart begins to pour out his wrath upon this servant, 51. <clears throat> he shall cut him in pieces, assign him a place for the hypocrites, weeping shall be there, and gnashing of teeth. And now with these words, Jesus slides from the parable into the reality with language of future judgment. Right? Let's look at the end words that he says. He says there there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Six times that's used in the book of Matthew to describe those who will be sent to those places, weeping and gnashing of teeth, and every time it describes the torment of hell. Weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the unfaithful servant who thought of his coming of master long way off will spend an eternity in torment. And Jesus tells us to be faithful now. We don't know when he's to return. Right? Backing up a little bit, we find this slave will be allotted a portion with the hypocrites. This is a place where those who professed allegiance to God with their lips, but have denied him with their lives, will be found. The Pharisees will be there. The Sadducees will be there. The Sunday churchgoers will be there who have no heart for God. It's very appropriate for this slave to be there as well. I mean, notice this man was a servant of his master. He admitted it in verse 48. He said, my master is gone. He is my master. I do have allegiance to him. But yet, by his actions, he denied everything he was. And how appropriate it was for him to be with the hypocrites. Though he gave allegiance to his master, he failed to do the will of his master. And in verse 51... It says here, he shall cut him in pieces. Literally, the Greek text reads, he shall cut him in two. Slice him like a piece of pizza. Right down the middle. It's not soft language, church family. It's not. This is hard, serious language. In recent days, I have seen just a glimpse of a mouse in our garage. You know the kind of thing, you open the door and, oh, it had to be a mouse. You start looking for it and you can't find it. We have set up some mouse traps in our garage. Pulled the spring open, put a little bit of cheese on there, and just waiting, just waiting. Have you ever seen a mouse in a mouse trap? The, the, the trap goes, boom! 
breaks his back, almost cuts the mouse in two. That's the language used here. Being cut in two. That's how serious this is. When I tell you to be faithful, I'm pleading and begging with you for your own good on that day. Because the punishment that awaits the wicked is terrible. And you need to see here that Jesus portrays this master as being without mercy at this point. It's a very appropriate comparison. When Jesus returns, the time of mercy is over. He's come to reward the faithful and punish the evil. In that day, there's going to be no time to clean the house. There'll be no time to set things in order. The Lord will return and find the matter of your service to Him, either faithful or evil. And the question I've tried to pound before you with an exhortation, with some examples, and then even here with the end of it all, is this, which type of servant are you? Are you the faithful servant or are you the evil servant? You'll be exposed someday for exactly who you are. And it's to your good to be the faithful servant. And I'm praying that the Lord would find us faithful. That the Lord would find us believing in Christ as our only hope. May the Lord be with us then to strengthen us to be faithful to His Word. I want to close our time in a, in a word of prayer. Lord, in recent days, I have been amazed at how often Your Scripture would put before us a demand to be faithful. And yet, how often the Scripture would put before us enabling grace to be faithful. In John chapter 15, I read this morning, apart from Me, Jesus said, you can do nothing. Means that apart from your sustaining grace and working in our lives, O Lord, we can do nothing. And so we need your grace and your favor to come upon us and to be with us, to cause us and help us to be faithful. Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 2 to be strong in the grace that's in Christ Jesus, just as a soldier works hard and the athlete works hard, and the farmer works hard. Lord, it's the grace of God that empowers them to do so. I think in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul said he labored more than all the apostles, and yet not him, but the grace of God working in him. I think in Colossians chapter 1, when he speaks about the tremendous agonizing and struggling that he puts forth, it's only according to Your power, which mightily works within Him. And so, Lord, this morning, as we think about faithfulness to You, I know that it's only by Your grace and Your favor working in us, as You did with Joseph, that we will ever stand a chance to be faithful. On our own, we will fall like Gehazi. But in You, and trusting in You, and considering ourselves dead to sin and alive to righteousness, Lord, You will empower us to be faithful And so, Lord, I pray to that end that we would be pleading with You constantly to be working among us, to be faithful, be stirring our hearts with with righteous and godly affections to allow us to see the glories of the Gospel of Christ, to allow us to see that God Himself is the Gospel, 
that we will get to enjoy God and be with God forever and ever and ever and ever and ever. Should we remain faithful in just these few years? God, I pray that you would look down upon Rack Valley Bible Church and delight to work among us, pour out your blessing upon us, that we'd be those about doing your will. That on that day when we come to face you, we'll be all smiles with anticipation and the joy of the glories that await us. And for those, O Lord, who know in their hearts, even right now, that they are headed for destruction, I pray that that truth would be upon their hearts and their minds. I pray that you would haunt them with that. Even as we saw in in Psalm 32, that as David didn't confess his sin day and night, your hand was heavy upon him. And I pray your hand would be heavily upon those people to cause them to see how their only hope is to cry out to you for mercy. They might see and know of this grace and kindness that we have in Christ. In His name we pray, in His power we trust.